developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Lynn, and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today, visiting with us is Dr. Janet Powell. And today, we're going to talk about vision and vision care after brain injury, the advantages of interdisciplinary collaborations, and how interdisciplinary collaborations can be fostered. But before we get started, let's learn a little bit more about Janet. Uh, Dr. Janet Powell grew up in California. Uh, suburb of Los Angeles. Last year, she celebrated her 50th anniversary of uh, graduating with her occupational therapy degree from the University of Washington in Seattle. Janet has worked in clinical and academic settings with a focus on helping people with neurologic disorders through interdisciplinary collaborations. As a clinician, she worked first with children with cerebral palsy and then with adults Uh, with stroke or traumatic brain injury. While working in adult outpatient rehab in the early 90s, she developed a neurologic vision screening and vision program in collaboration with optometry. And Janet was one of the very, very early adopters and uh, explorers into how vision and her work in occupational therapy with um, patients that have had stroke and brain injury. And so we celebrate Janet for her early work and then Uh, You'll see what she's accomplished since then as well. Janet earned her master's degree in rehab medicine and an interdisciplinary PhD in rehabilitation medicine, psychology, uh, biostatistics, and education. Uh, She eventually became a faculty member at University of Washington Department of Rehab Medicine, Division of Occupational Therapy. And she retired uh, from the university in 2020 where she served as program director for the last nine years. Janice conducted multiple research studies focusing on improving lives of people with brain injury and their caregivers that have been published in uh, occupational therapy, rehab medicine, and optometry journals. And she's authored some chapters in textbooks. And last July, which is why Janet's name came back to me after all of these years, she co-authored a book entitled Zoltan's Vision, Perception, and Cognition, Evaluation and Treatment of the Adult with Acquired Brain Injury. That was published, and that's like a Bible for those of us working in rehab and collaborating with other professionals. So, Dr. Janet Powell, welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here today. That's great. So let's get started. You know, a lot of people still have confusion what is occupational therapy? Um, 
you know, and what you specifically are interested in. So go ahead and describe occupational therapy. Yeah, it's a great place to start. I mean, the thing about occupational therapy, and it comes along with making this choice as a profession, is that it's a field that hasn't been known very well for a long time. We've been around since World War One. I. I think only recently, I think, has there been a little more press and a little more general knowledge. So one of the things that you do as an occupational therapist is get used to explaining what that is. And, and over the years, this is where I've landed on, on doing that, is that the key to people understanding occupational therapy, and we often refer to occupational therapy as OT and to occupational therapists as OTs, but I'm just going to stick with occupational therapy not to confuse people. So the key to understanding occupational therapy is understanding the occupation part of our name. So it's a very old-fashioned use of that term, I think, that reflects that our, our roots are so far back. It's not just a person's job, although we are interested in work that people do, but rather the hundreds of activities that we do to occupy our time. So that occupying our time is where the occupational part comes from. So this could be personal care activities like getting dressed, eating, toileting, bathing, home management and community activities like cooking or grocery shopping, transportation. It could be school, it could be work, it could be leisure. And we even more recently kind of started thinking about sleep and rest. So really everything that people do. So a core belief for occupational therapists is that participating, being able to participate in everyday occupations is critical for people's health and well-being. And so that's always our, our overarching goal, that we would want people to be able to participate in the things that we often say that they need and or want to do. So you can see it's such a really broad field, but within that, we use two main treatment approaches. So one is remediation and one is compensation. So when we use remediation, we take that approach, we're focusing on the person. So we are trying to improve either their physical, their cognitive or emotional abilities that are causing them to have difficulty in their everyday activities. But if their everyday activity, if their underlying abilities are not likely to improve or during the time that they're getting better, we'll use a compensatory approach and when we do that, we're going to change the environment, the tools that a person is using, the task itself, so the person can still do the activity despite their difficulties. So maybe a few examples, if I could give those, might, might be helpful. So say you're working with a child who's having difficulty writing. So from a remediation approach, you would work on improving that child's fine motor coordination, how they use their hand. Um, if you're taking... A, compensatory approach, you might give them an adaptive grip for their pencil so they can hold onto their pencil more easily. Or say, let's take a brain injury example, a person with traumatic brain injury who's distracted when they're cooking dinner. So you could work from a remediation standpoint on increasing their attention skills, or you could take and or a compensatory approach and reduce the distractions that are in the environment. Maybe they have a TV, TV on blaring in the background, and you could teach them to turn off that TV and reduce the distractions. And then even though they're still having pain, trouble paying attention, they'd be able to do that cooking task better. Or take an emotional example, person with social anxiety that stops them from going shopping. Uh, you could, from a remediation standpoint, increase their social interaction skills. 
or from a compensatory approach, you could teach them to shop online. So you can see how both of those can work in tandem to really help um, people engage in those activities and occupations that are meaningful to them. So the other and, piece of occupation. Oh, yeah, you know, ahead. if I could interrupt you for just a minute here, sure. uh, I, I want to make sure our, our listeners know that not all OTs are the same, occupational therapists. It's just like not all optometrists are the same. There's specialists that really work with kids and, and they're sensing and there's specialists that might work um, in rehab like you. And so you gave such a, a, a complete, comprehensive, diverse uh, explanation of, of occupational therapy, because that's really what it is. And you know, I just had to share, share a quick story. When I first started in practice, and I wanted to send one of my patients to an occupational therapist because he had such terrible coordination and balance and muscle weakness and core. And I mentioned it to a parent about making a referral to the occupational therapist, their first response was, well, my kid's only eight. He doesn't need a job yet. And so I'm <laughs> yeah. sure you've heard those before, but, and it's come a long oh, way. There you go. I think, I hope we've, I hope we're getting past that. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know what? Yeah. But still, um, there are a lot of people that, you know, might experience an occupational therapist in the hospital after a stroke, helping them get back to their daily living activities and not realize what an OT would do with a child would be totally different and um, same goals, but totally different technology and strategies. You're absolutely right. You because, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why it's confusing to people. But you can see because we have such a, a broad base of what we're, where we're starting from that, you know, occupational therapists, as you say, work with people of all ages, many different types of diagnoses and a variety of settings. And often people specialize, just as you said, within you know, one part of, of all of those things we, we just talked about. But what we're always doing is focusing on, on improving people's ability to participate in their, in their occupations. And we also often use occupation as a treatment modality and help people by having them actually engage in activities and occupations. It's, it's a wonderful field. I, I, I can't say, I, I couldn't have, cho- have chosen a better field. I just love occupational therapy. So, and well, many you, OTs do. So. Yeah, your love and passion certainly comes across. So now let's switch gears a little bit about how you got involved in how vision and occupational therapy uh, was so important to collaborate. I know I had my own experience in that I have a younger sister who is an occupational therapist. And I hired her in my practice initially um, when she was just getting out of OT school and trained her as a vision therapist. And she brought OT into our vision world. So I kind of had the opposite experience of how important Mm. it was. And and over the time, and and she had at that time was working mainly with a pediatric population. So we, and that's what I, I was seeing many patients that had, uh, reading and tracking and poor eye-hand coordination kinds of issues. So we collaborated the different direction, and I started seeing how important, you know, the the body stability and balance and coordination was in helping us improve the visual areas, especially in eye-hand coordination and depth perception, things like that. You came about it kind of in the opposite way. Share with us how you went and how you noticed that vision was a missing piece of your treatment and your profession? Well, the very first time, and I'm a little embarrassed to, to 
to sort of talk about this part because I don't think I did a very good job with it. But I was when I was working as a pediatric occupational therapist, as you said, that's what I did when I started my career. And we frequently used this assessment that included the words visual, perceptual, cognitive in the title. And it was like a paper pencil based test of kids, things that kids did in a, in a workbook. And almost every time I gave that test, I just thought, well, what about the vision part? Are, how do we know that the children can actually see these test materials? Um, and every so often a child would show up at the clinic with glasses and it would be like, oh, well, now they have glasses. But I thought, well, well, what about the other kids? Is anyone checking their vision? But, you know, I was such a new therapist and I, I really didn't trust my clinical judgment enough to ask about it. Um, and I just thought, well, if vision is something we should be thinking about as occupational therapists, you know, one of these other highly skilled clinicians on this in the staff where I was working would have brought it up already, right? You know, that's what I thought to myself. You know, it mm. must I must be off I must be off base here. So I did notice that vision care might be missing at that time, but I didn't do a thing about it. Nothing. I didn't even ask my question. That's what I'm embarrassed about. I should have at least asked the question. <laughs> um, but then about 15 years later, so it was in the fall of 1992. Now that's like 30 years, some years ago now, I had two experiences very closely related in time to each other um, uh, that, that related to vision that resulted in me deciding to do something. One was something that happened to me in my professional world, and the other was something that happened in my personal world. So from the professional side, so at that time I was working um, with adults with brain injury in an outpatient rehab facility, and I just came across a brochure. We got mailed a lot of brochures for continuing ed. You need to take continuing ed courses for your licensure, et cetera. And this was a course on vision. And it just sounded interesting to me, but no more interesting than any other kind of continuing ed. But I thought, well, I needed some additional credits, so, so I signed up. So it turns out that this course was taught by an occupational therapist named Mary Warren. So Mary Warren has gone on to become the most influential person on vision in the entire field of occupational therapy. But at that time, it was a couple of months before she published her first articles on vision, and she wasn't well-known at all. Um, so it's just like a stroke of luck that I, that I took this course. So what she talked about, she presented this new framework that she developed for how occupational therapists should think about vision. So what she said is that a person's basic visual abilities, so for example, how clearly a person can see, um, how well their eyes move to gather information, that those are the foundation on which perception, which is how the brain makes meaning out of sensory input that's coming in, and cognition are built. And she said, as occupational therapists, we should not be evaluating and treating perception and cognition as we had done for many, many years without knowledge of a person's foundational visual skills that that was a critical missing piece in what we were doing. Uh, and that made a lot of sense to me. And especially when I had this personal experience, this experience in my personal life at just about that same time. So I was in my early 40s at the time, and I needed glasses to read. And I'd never worn glasses before. I didn't want to wear glasses. I didn't want the hassle of dealing with glasses. I probably had a little vanity in there. I didn't necessarily want to know what I see what I look like with glasses on. 
So I tried what's called monovision. So my vision provider prescribed me a contact lens to wear in one eye, and I would use that for seeing up close, because that's what I needed now to read. And I used the other eye, which didn't need any correction at all, uh, for distance, because I could see far. I didn't have a problem with that. So one eye with a contact in for near, and then the other eye just uncorrected for, for far, for distance. And, you know, it really seemed like it was working well. I had a few issues. Like sometimes I could feel like one of my eyes was pulling when I was reading, and that's the only way I know to describe it. It just felt like pulling. Um, and I had a few very close calls when driving because my depth perception was off. Uh, but I thought, well, I can deal with that. I can just be more careful. And the only time that I felt I couldn't see clearly was watching a movie in a theater. And, and I thought, well, I'll just stop wearing my contact when I go to the theater to watch a movie. And I did, and that worked fine. So I stuck with it. But then, then I started having cognitive issues. So at that time, you know, we had all paper records and I'd go to work and I'd have to write the date on my chart note. And I was always really good at remembering the date, but suddenly I didn't know. And even more worrisome to me, I couldn't figure out what the date was. So I'd sit there and go, so what day is it today? And I go, Hmm, I don't know. Well, what day of the week is it? Well, I'm not really sure about that either. Well, what month are we in? Well, I don't really know. And then I'd even go, well, what season is it in? Well, I'm not sure about that. And I'd go, well, we live in Seattle. It's kind of gray and rainy all the time or a lot of the time. But still, we have seasons. We have seasons. And, and that really bothered me. But still, I'm like, okay, I'm okay. The final straw came. You know, I just started looking at my desk calendar to figure out the date. I thought, okay, I can deal with that. But then one time I was paying for groceries with cash, which at that time, I didn't typically use a credit card. I always paid with cash. And I can remember how clearly uh, I felt when I had counted out the bills, and then I looked down at the coins in my hand, and I couldn't figure out which ones added up to 37 cents. I'll never forget that, <laughs> 37 cents. That's so funny. So, you know, and th those are very dramatic stories that uh, happened to everybody. You know, it's not so unique. You, you know, you were yeah. able to take advantage of seeing what it's like. Because I remember when I started reading Mary Warren and, and she described people that, you know, they thought they were losing their cognition or their balance or they couldn't do their sewing anymore. And people would put them in rehab trying to get their coordination skill. And then something would happen that they'd go see the eye doctor and get glasses to see better and all those problems cleared up. And Absolutely. and her point was like, you know, this is not, most of our activity activities are not hand-eye coordination. They're eye-hand. Vision normally leads the body in most cases. And yeah, absolutely. And you, and you have just given a couple just beautiful examples of when your vision's off, whether it's you need glasses or double vision, or tracking, depth, anything. Um, there's been a lot of rehab, and this still happens in the hospital with you know stroke and brain injury patients where you know they go in to the hospital, they may not have their normal glasses, and they're trying to get them to do all these activities and they're not seeing right. Or yeah. 
you know, they have bifocals and they've hurt their neck and they can't move their head right. So so thanks for the, the great examples of what it's like uh, for your big discovery, you know, and it's really the personal that sometimes makes the difference that you see the real importance. Um, I'm going to want you to go on further on this, but we are going to be taking a break here in, in just a minute. And when we uh, come back, uh, we'll continue on with your experience of, you know, how the vision program really impacted the rest of your career. So we'll be back in a couple minutes. Dr. Lynn will be right back after this. Can your child see, really see, more than 2020? Does your child struggle in school, have trouble with tracking when reading, or resist writing? Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's award-winning book, See It, Say It, Do It, provides parents and teachers with specific tools and strategies in visualization and processing. Improve and empower your child's learning and performance in school, sports, and play. Get See It, Say It, Do It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's book, 50 Tips to Improve Your Sports Performance, has identified the top 50 ways for you to achieve excellent results in any sport activity, enhance eye-mind-body coordination skills, achieve the mental edge, prevent injuries. This book belongs in every athlete's or coach's sports bag. Get 50 tips to improve your sports performance on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Welcome back. We have been talking to Dr. Janet Powell, who's an occupational therapist who therapist who has been um, faculty at University of Washington for many years after she had many years of experience of occupational therapy, with, especially with adults with stroke and brain injury. And she has written and co-authored this new book, that we'll have information on this uh, in our show notes. I call it kind of the Bible of, of occupational therapy and vision interaction. And so many of my, my colleagues I know have purchased this book, and I encourage anybody in the field of vision care, rehab, OT, to really take a look at this book. So Janet uh, was explaining to us how she really got interested in the vision impact in her not only for herself personally, but the impact that it would have on her career. And as she started including some of the vision screenings and vision programs with her patients, she found how important it was to engage other members of the rehab team. And this collaboration, in fact, Janet, you and I, when we were speaking, you talked about the article that I had written with my sister, who is the OT, yeah. Beth Fishman, uh, and it's called the collaboration of, you know, vision and occupational therapy, because it is, I see a continuum and so supportive of, 
it's one of those examples of one plus one equals three. You know, the OT, the occupational therapy, you don't just add it together. You go beyond what you'd ever expect individually. So, so tell us more about engaging other members of the rehab team. Sure. Um, and I just want to say that that paper that you wrote, you and your sister wrote on that collaboration was one of the first things I, when I was trying to figure this all out that I read, it's like, well, someone's doing this. So that's funny. Kind of, it's fun to kind of come back to that now. So, you know, what, what was, I think the most critical thing or one of the most critical things was just the approach that we use. So first I should say that I had been able to identify a local based on the recommendations from Mary Warren, who said that we should be collaborating with behavioral optometrists, which are now typically called neurooptometrists, to address these foundational visual abilities. I had, you know, done a lot of work and figured out someone local, local uh, behavioral optometrist to collaborate with, who turned out to be uh, an expert in the field over time, and that was a Dr. Nancy Torgerson, and she's someone you know well, right, Lynn? No, very well. We're very good friends, and you could not have found a better collaborative partner at that time or ever. Uh, she's got one of the largest vision therapy practices really in the world, and because of her her study, her care, her collaboration. And so, I mean, talk about synchronicity of finding the right yeah. person at the right time for both of you. That was great. So lucky. And I think what I started with her, like how to set up that collaboration, I really thought, well, like what's going to work in the rehab rehab world and wanted someone who could individualize treatment, set functional goals, you know, had objective ways of measuring progress, willing to start treatment sort of the least complicated option and move on from there. And so we'd already established that between the two of us. That that's how we were going to go about it. And then when we started talking with the physicians and then the rehab team, what worked so well is we just took such a low-key educational approach. You know, we weren't pushy. We didn't say, you've got to do this. You know, this is the best thing ever. We just said, you know, is this something we could try? Could we do this as a pilot? And we evaluate how it goes. We'll stop if it's not working. And she was so good. Dr. Torgerson was so good at when we were, whether we were talking with physicians or talking with the rest of the rehab team, at explaining how she thought about functional vision, what she did to evaluate and treat vision issues. She was never pushy. She never got defensive. And she used a lot of demonstrations and often seemed to me like she invited the people in the audience who were the most skeptical, the ones asking the most challenging questions to participate in those demonstrations. And then when they could experience it for themselves, they'd have these aha moments. But I was just talking with her about this last week, and she said, she said, yeah, that's share and show. And I thought, oh, share and show. I really like that for thinking about it that way. It's sharing. It's not like pushing your agenda on someone else, but just saying, I've got some information to share. Maybe you'd be interested in it. Um, you know, that's a great point, and I'm glad you brought it up. And it, it, it makes me recall I was doing a, a lecture to a hospital group, and many of the neurologists, physicians were very skeptical skeptical of our vision therapy and our prism work and our lenses and i had a doctor she was you could see just denying shaking shaking her head like yeah right so it was time to share the show like that and i had prisms and you've probably seen the prism demonstration which will change how where you are in space where what looks different and how you move in space 
And so I asked her to demonstrate it, uh, be the one to try on the prisms. And she'll go, fine, you know, and she walk, walks up. I put on the prisms. And then she doubled over. I thought she was going to collapse. She took them off and sat down. Uh, and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that was a flop of a Sherrod show. And later what I found out is that she has Meniere's disease, which is an inner ear vestibular ah. problem. Uh -huh. And by disrupting her visual integration and integrity, she got so nauseous and sick she couldn't move. Ah, uh, yeah. And so the demo yeah. made her a believer of the impact of vision yeah. on, on movement and balance. And I could have talked forever and she wouldn't have necessarily believed anything I said until she saw and felt that experience. So thanks for, for bringing that, that important up, important item. Yeah. And I think that optometrists seem like they have some really good tools for that. Like you say, specialized glasses that can change what people are seeing. That seems like a really, such a useful way to, to go about it. Um, right. And I think also sort of that, you know, relationship building in there, the, you know, they knew me, they trusted me there. And I think that was helpful because they sort of, so like, might have been harder if Dr. Torgerson had come in on her own, but to have an ally in the space, um, I think I think was also critical. But I have to tell this other story about how 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 that educational approach worked in in even more challenging situations. So when I was interviewing for my faculty position, the rehab position there was the brain in, injury expert was so skeptical of my interest in vision. You know, as your interviews, they say, well, so what are you interested in researching, blah, blah, blah. And I've talked about vision. She was just adamant that people with brain injury didn't have foundational vision problems, that what we were seeing was perception. So after I joined the faculty, I asked her if we could have Dr. Torgerson come and give an in-service for her and her rehab team. And she agreed. And she became such a strong advocate with that more knowledge, more time, and maybe getting to know me better for, for neurooptometric services. So she started referring her patients from her outpatient practice. She arranged for hospital day passes for people on inpatient rehab. So people go to vision appointments. But I think the thing that really sealed the deal for me is when we were presenting, she agreed to present with Dr. Torgerson uh, and me at a, this big conference. And I'll never forget her standing up there taking what I'm sure was a pretty big risk, although maybe she didn't see it that way, but it looked like that to me, and saying to the other rehab physicians in the audience, you know those things our patients do or say that are happening to them that don't make sense? The ones that we sometimes think they're making up or are likely indications of some sort of mental health problem, those are often things that can be explained by vision issues. Wow. It was just incredible. It was so clear, like how far we had come at that point. Um, it's just, it's just like, I don't know. I think that's like one of the highlights of my career, thinking of her standing up there and saying that when she had been so skeptical. You know, so, when when somebody else in another field starts speaking your praise or speaking the experience, um, the audience hears it differently. Yeah. Um, I remember I was speaking to another group. It was actually. Um, it was a group of um, neurologists and therapists uh, who treat mainly stroke patients and, and brain injury patients. And the statistics of vision issues in that population is quite variable depending on uh, who's doing the evaluations, what kind of evaluation. But generally, the literature usually says between 70 and 90% of the people that have had some type of brain injury 
have some type of visual problem. And so I gently threw out that statistic to these skeptics and right away the neurologist raises his hand and he says, you're wrong. And I'm thinking he doesn't believe it, just like you mentioned. And I said, well, what, what do you believe the statistic is for that? He goes, 100%. <laughs> I go, great, you said that, I'll believe that. So, you know, you're sharing the same, such a similar experience that I have gone through and you were groundbreaking. You were so open-minded, so collaborative to allow you to expand and you to share. Because I'm sure if I interviewed Nancy on this, uh, Nancy Torkison, she'd say some of the same things of how you opened her eyes up, mm-hmm. you know, to working yeah. in that field. So that's truly a collaboration where, you know, both both sides benefit, but who really benefits is the patient. Yeah, and for sure. And I think the other sort of key thing was just really appreciating where the other team members are coming from. So what's their I, perspective? What might their experiences be? Um, you know, this was so new and so different, and we just had to realize that, that it made so much sense to us, but they hadn't had the experience with Monovision that I had, you know, yeah. had different experiences. So I think just appreciating that, going at it from, from you know, that perspective is, is, I think that's the other big thing I'd say that, that helps in engaging other people on the rehab team. Yeah, and, and that is so important. And, and so, you know, I see that you quote, retired in 2020, and then you come out with this big book. So, you know, maybe you retired from that job, but you certainly haven't retired from the field. Is that correct? That's right. That's yeah. right. I retired from my university job. Yeah, my faculty job. But... And, and took on another big job. And congratulations yeah, that, that on your book. That was actually a 10-year job, that book. So. Wow. Can you share <laughs> with our audience a little bit about that book, what's covered in the extensiveness oh, yeah, of, sure. of treatment? Sure. Sure. So this is a fifth edition of a book that's um, been really influential in the field. And, and previous editions were written, uh, not all of them, but the last few by a, a OT, an occupational therapist named Barbara Zoltan. So that's why Zoltan in the title there, to really honor her contributions uh, to the field and, and to this book. So it, uh, it gives a lot of basic information about vision and perception and cognition. And then it talks more specifically about how occupational therapists would evaluate patients uh, with, with adults, really, with acquired brain injury in all of those areas, whether it's vision, perception, cognition, and then how would we go about uh, treating them. But I think because, maybe perhaps because of uh, all of the really strong sort of background information, you know, we were really up to date on all the research that was done, and so it's it's very based in sort of the literature as well as our clinical experiences. And my co-author actually has a background in low vision, working with optometry and low vision with people that are having trouble seeing maybe from uh, glaucoma or macular degeneration or some other disease process. So we really complement each other. We had a very similar philosophy on that OT occupational therapists should not be doing this by themselves, that they needed to work with, with skilled vision providers who knew how to evaluate and treat, and that we really had an ethical responsibility uh, to to engage those other people and bring them onto the team. So 
I'm really pleased. I wouldn't have worked with someone who'd have different perspectives because I just feel so strongly about that. So we talk a little bit in the introduction about how we look at it and um, and and why we look at it that way and how much harm can be done if, if people don't have, you know, the proper evaluation before they go about treating, which still happens today. I mean, it's a really serious issue, I think, in the field. So hopefully, you know, I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to be involved in writing the book was to be able to share that perspective and to share why I felt that way from my own personal clinical experiences. So um, lots of case examples, lots of case examples of, um, you know, real case examples. And for, for faculty who buy the book, there's also a lot of um, teaching materials that people have access to from the publishers that we put together from both of our teaching experiences. She teaches, like me, adult neurorehabilitation for many years. So we had a lot of resources to share that way too. And who do you find is your main audience for this book? Is it other OTs, rehab therapists, vision therapists? Who all would well, benefit from it, that book? Our primary audience was really occupational therapy students. So that's who we're gearing it towards. We, as it would be a book used for occupational therapy students, but also clinicians, occupational therapy clinicians, practitioners. But I've been really pleased to see um, how interested optometry was in this book. And I didn't realize that that was sort of a resource that they'd used in the past and would find um, this book helpful too. So that's been a huge bonus to me. I don't think we thought about that when we were writing it necessarily. It's so, so funny. That's all I thought about. <laughs> like, whoa, <laughs> this is a great resource for optometrists, vision therapists, <laughs> ophthalmologists. Because uh, you do bring in, I was so amazed with the amount of research and and studies, and it's it's so in depth. Um, I really think almost anybody working in the rehab field would benefit from um, looking at what you've done. And so, a big congratulation and acknowledgement for you and your co-authors on such a uh, valuable addition to the literature of your life experience. And and so. We thank you for that. And so my next question for you is, so what's up next for you? I mean, you've done so much in your field. I can't imagine that you're going to be playing Mahjong every day, are you? <laughs> well, uh, we have told the publisher we're willing to do the next edition. So, <laughs> we've got, so we've got about three years this time to get the next edition out. So we'll do another. I, I said, I, I asked my co-author after this one was done, would you do another edition? She goes, yeah, I think I would. I said, I definitely would, especially now where it is. We did so many, we've, you know, changes from the edition before this one. It's just really, like, in my mind anyway, kind of a completely different book, um, just just because how much, you know, more knowledge was out there and, and maybe just a little bit of just kind of the style that, that it was written in. Um, so I'm up for another edition. So we have a little lull before we have to start working on that. And I have a you know, a few possible presentations coming up um, as a result of the book. So I think yeah, that's I'm great. I'm glad to get the word out. I'm kind of curious. Um, I mean, because this is so new and so to date. What would the next edition hold for us? What, what would you add to some of that? Well, you know, I'm really pleased to see that there's more and more research being done in this area. So we would certainly want to update all of the research. Um, you know, with new studies, you know, you know, you always have to go back to the literature and see what's changed and go back to the clinical practices and 
you know, I think there's there's more things that are being done in optometry, you know, with different types of prisms, et cetera, that would be interesting to, to include, um, you know, just how practice changes over time and, and how we might need to address what's sort of possible in whatever that clinical world is at, at, at this time. So that's that's where I think we would start. And then, you know, you, you read it over and you go, oh, I could have explained that better. Or, yeah. you know... I, I wish I had done this a little bit and, you know, and so maybe we would have been better if it was organized this way. So you always have those second thoughts as an author, once you put it out there, like, oh, I don't know. Oh, I and remember that like so it. well. <laughs> I remember I so finished my book. To do that. Yep. Yeah. And when I finished my first book and was going to the editor the next day, I go, oh my gosh, I've got a whole section on tracking. And my book coach said, next time. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> so yeah. I understand that. Well, Janet, we only have a couple minutes left in our time. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap it up? Oh, I think I'd just like to say that that vision program, starting that vision program 30 years ago, changed the entire trajectory of my career. So if I hadn't done that, I think I would have remained a clinician. I loved being a clinician. I loved working where I was working. I, I, I think I would still be doing that, but instead, you know, I went back to school because I got interested in research. That led me to more, you know, academic uh, coursework. And then I, w I had never considered taking a faculty job and certainly not at the same place I had graduated from, much less becoming the program director there. So all the research I got to do and all of the teaching I got to do and everything that that was just something I wouldn't ever even have imagined was all because of that first vision program. And it's just been such a wonderful career. And I don't think I realized until just talking with people recently, sort of how how new it was when we started it. So it's it's kind of been a nice time of looking back and saying too, wow, those, those were a lot of things that happened that, that I really hadn't, hadn't ever put together sort of into, into one package. Um, so it's just been such a wonderful experience just even doing this podcast of that chance for reflection uh, back on my career and where, where it started and where it went and how it ended up or how it's ending or how it's still going or however yeah. you want to think about it. But yeah, well, it's just been incredible. Well, Janet, thank you so very much for joining us today. It's my honor to be with you and just want to remind all our listeners that your vision doesn't find you. You really do define your vision and expand your vision and see with clarity, courage, and confidence. Janet, thank you. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure and uh, I'll look forward to your next edition. <laughs> thank you. I've Yeah, it's just really been fun talking with you today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.